Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Thank you for being here with me today. I am coming to you from, surprise, surprise, yet another location. I'm at a guest house in Arusha, Tanzania. There's a lot of commotion going going on outside, people talking to each other and moving stuff around. Um, The walls are quite thin here, so I'm hoping the little handy-dandy noise-canceling button on this microphone works, but if you hate a random shit, (laughs) that's what it is. Um, Don't have much time recording this quickly. I wanted to post it because I am about to leave on a 10-day safari, and who knows what sort of connectivity I'll have, certainly not enough to upload a podcast episode. Um, So here we are. I released a podcast a week ago, and look at me being all timely in releasing another. Um, If you haven't listened to last week's episode, um, please do. I feel quite proud of it, actually, sort of the culmination of a lot of the thoughts that I have been having and have had around power and shadow, especially when they pop up in the healing professions and especially when those sorts of healing professions involve spirituality or psychedelics or any kind of esoteric practice. So I'm away for 10 days. You have that episode and this episode to listen to. So lots of stuff to keep you busy, hopefully. Um, Yeah, I've never been to Africa before, as I think I mentioned on the last podcast, and it's been quite interesting. And I'm looking forward to sharing more about my experiences. We spent about a week on Zanzibar, which was insanely beautiful and really sort of amazing in very simple ways. We stayed at a place that had a a yoga school and a really great teacher that happened to be there. So I was doing yoga twice a day and like eating delicious breakfasts and just getting a lot of work done. I felt a little bit guilty because I feel like I could have been doing all of that in some like more mundane place than Zanzibar. Um, But all in all, it was like so refreshing and nice to kind of catch up and relax and get back into my body. Um, get better at Ashtanga yoga, which makes me feel really good. And I'm hoping to continue that practice. It's so difficult. I I don't know if you guys relate at all, but I'm definitely one of those types of people that feels like far more motivated to do physical activity in the presence of other people. I feel like when I'm alone, I'm like, I don't really need to work that hard or like nobody can see that I stopped. But there's something, especially yoga, about like being in a hot room with a bunch of people, like the energy of that feels incredibly motivating to me. And so it's been really difficult, not just with COVID, but I think also with traveling to kind of have a practice like that um, regularly. But I got to do it because it makes me feel really good. So 
I'm going to try to keep that going. Uh, speaking of movement, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this on here before, but I wanted to briefly mention that I will be in Greece, in Athens, the first two weeks of August. I'm doing a program called um, Contact by Contact, and it's a sort of teacher training. And it's a really interesting healing, uh, movement-based healing modality. And the the founder is the teacher is a dancer who created this healing modality that combines different movement techniques like uh, contact improvisation, yoga, qigong, authentic movement passing through all of these different movement techniques and have put them together in a form of therapy that we can help people with. So it deals in energy, deals a lot in relationship. Um, I did some uh, contact improvisation when I was in Thailand and I just felt like it was so refreshing to kind of uh, embody and like traverse the realm of relationship and energy, which is something I feel like I do intellectually a lot, right? Like I read about feminine masculine polarity and I read about power dynamics. Um, and that's great to think about these ideas and to think through them and to discuss them and to sort of like see them as they present themselves in society or in my own life, but to really take all of the words away and really take a lot of the context away and just embody the energy of it was fascinating. Um, I'm sorry if I already talked about this on the podcast because who knows what I've talked about, but there was this really fascinating moment in Thailand where we were doing these practices and um, the exercise was about basically like creating a physical sphere in front of us with our arms, which was uh, supposed to represent basically our own energy body. And over a slow period of time, we sort of like built up this sphere around us and then we were instructed to engage with other people's spheres. And then ultimately we were, you know, just one person, like engage with one person and then engage with the whole group. And it was fascinating to sort of see how this simple exercise, which had no words and no real context as it relates to like, we're not at a party, we're not like discussing an idea in a class or anything. It was just, here we are, a bunch of bodies in a room, um, exploring how we interact with each other without all of the details. And it was really interesting to see how in that exercise of engaging with people, even though, again, it was without context, I still felt very similarly to how I engage with and experience the energy of a party, for example, right? So like I'm the type of person that can be very talkative and very engaged and then all of a sudden I'm like tapped out and I have to, <laughs> I have to disappear. Um, and that same thing happened in this, uh, in this exercise that we did in the class. Um, and I had this interesting thought in my head that said like, oh my God, this is basically like a metaphor for everything. And then I thought, well, wait a second, what if everything is actually just a metaphor for this, right? Because what is actually ultimately going on at a foundational level, bodies exchanging energy um, and bodies relating to each other through energetic currents. And yes, we can add the context of relationship and the context of location and uh, the context of intellect and the context of words. But if you take all of that away, all that's left is the bodily interaction, and I found this revelatory in many ways. And I had a friend who I knew had done this thing called contact by contact, which basically takes a lot of principles of contact improvisation, which is more performative um, and uh, sort of channels them through a therapeutic lens. 
So I'm not honestly quite sure what I'm going to do with that. I think I am the sort of person that has done a lot of different trainings, like um, doing my astrology apprenticeship or getting a health coaching certification. I've never, I never wanted to be a health coach. I never really wanted to be an astrologer necessarily. Um, but I felt called to explore these different practices and, um, sort of open-ended, like, let's see what happens with them. And I think what I've witnessed in my life, you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on like, well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this. I'm not sure how I'm going to use this thing or I don't actually want to be an astrologer, so why would I get certified in astrology? Um, But of course, there's so many different ways that we can utilize all of these different things, right? Like I write about mythology and archetypes. um, And sometimes, oftentimes, especially now what I'm trying to do on Substack is not actually even talk about astrology at all. I'm just talking about the stories that have informed um, astrology, but without actually talking about astrology. But I'm able to do that because of my knowledge of astrology. So I don't know what I'm going to do with this training, um, but I do know that I'm really fascinated with all the things that I talk about on this podcast, like power dynamics, like communication, like embodiment. And we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. I don't see myself as a therapist, really, or a healer, as I went on and on about in in last week's uh, episode. Um, But I am really interested in telling stories And I feel like, at least in part, I would like to tell stories with my body in addition to words, um, both speaking words and writing words. So we shall see. But I wanted to mention that it's called Contact by Contact. Um, It's uh, put on by the founder's dance company called Unity Space. So if there's something you're interested in, they offer trainings all around the world in four different levels. Um, So that's something I'll be doing. And sort of related to this conversation, which is with a really, really impressive young woman, Chloe Valdery, who I saw on Bill Maher a few months ago and felt um, very honored that she was willing to come on my show. And I will let our conversation speak for itself, but she has a company called Theory of Enchantment, which is basically aimed to reconstruct uh, conventional anti-racism training, both for individuals and for workplaces, corporations, companies, etc. And which is amazing, right? (laughs) Um, I've tried my best to talk about what I find are the problems with a lot of Um, ideological movements, identitarian movements, uh, whether it's around racism or gender or sexuality, uh, that I feel like create more division and more hostility and really promote a lot of, I think, authoritarian practices rather than doing what I think the overarching goal is, which is acceptance and understanding and equality. Uh, And it's incredibly frustrating for me because, of course, I desire equality. I consider myself very liberal. I think people should have equal rights. I think people should be able to identify however they want. But the means by which we accomplish that is something that I feel extremely alienated from as far as the conventional belief systems and um, all of the woke spaces that I feel like are much more infused with hatred and misunderstanding and control and anger more than anything else. So I remember when I started this podcast back in late 2018, I really felt like I I know I wasn't the only one talking about these things and saying like, hey, maybe this isn't really the right way to do this. Like, I feel like some of these things are a little bit problematic. 
Um, but it was so scary to do that, that I think even though a lot of us probably thought it, we were afraid to say it. And there certainly weren't a lot of people going out into the public and like creating companies around this or writing books about this because these things are still being canceled and people are being harassed. And it's really difficult to just ask genuine questions and come from a place of curiosity and nuance when it comes to the ways in which we are going to potentially, hopefully achieve equality. So uh, I think Chloe is incredibly brave for really um, trying to tackle this and the problems of traditional workplace trainings, especially um, diversity training that I think is doing a lot more to like scare people and freak people out and make people question themselves and sort of opt out of their intuition and opt out of their bodies instead of getting them back into their bodies. And getting back into our bodies, embracing our own complexity as a means to embrace other people's complexity, um, reminding ourselves that there is no mind-body split uh, is really what Chloe is all about. And it's definitely something that I've been thinking about in my life in a myriad of different ways, which is why I wanted to mention the contact by contact thing in today's episode. Um, I also, uh, if you subscribe on Substack, which I recommend you do, this is where I'm putting all of my stuff. Now, all of the podcasts are, podcasts are hosted on Substack. All of my writing is on Substack. You can go there by going to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot Substack dot com. And what's really cool about Substack is now you can interact with me about podcast episodes. So whereas before I used a host that just sort of like put them out into the streaming apps, um, I couldn't get your feedback about them. I couldn't get your thoughts, your questions, nothing like that. But now if you subscribe on Substack, which you can do for free in order to get access to everything, um, you can engage with me and you can also get email notifications when I post an episode. And also I'm able to put like more information in the show notes um, than I was before. So I mentioned something at the end of this podcast uh, conversation about a 60-minute segment that I watched, and I included that in the show notes for this show, which you can find on Substack. And the deal with Substack is basically a replacement for Patreon. And the reason I moved to it is because on Patreon, you couldn't sign up for a free subscription. And I wanted to be able to bring more of this community to you the audience. And uh, I felt uncomfortable putting a lot of what I was offering behind a paywall. So when you go to Substack, there is still the option to donate to the project. So if you have the means, it's five bucks a month, uh, which is what, like a dollar something a week. You can also sign up as a founding member or as an annual subscription. Um, and if you do the annual subscription, you can save even more money. Or if you do the founding member, you can give me more money <laughs> if you have it and you find this project and this content and this podcast and my writing valuable. Um, so if you have the means to support, I really appreciate it. This podcast will always be ad-free. So literally the only way that I make money doing this is through your donations. Um, so I appreciate if you have the means to donate and it allows people who don't have the means to donate to get access to the same thing. So whether or not you can afford to donate, you can still subscribe on Substack and get access to all the same stuff. We have open threads. I'm going to be posting podcast episodes. Um, sorry, not podcast, definitely podcast episodes, but also um, playlists. I'm going to be bringing back the book club soon. Um, I've been posting poetry and writing and different sorts of like um uh, like bonus content related to the podcast on Substack. So anyakotz.substack.com is where you can find all of that. Let's see, is there anything else to talk to you about? I mean, I could just talk to you guys about everything forever. Um, but I think that's it. And I am going to play you in 
with a song called Dreamer by Arisha Badru. And as I was listening back to this conversation with Chloe and listening to this song, and really this is how I feel a lot of the time, especially because I feel like this whole cancel culture woke shit is like still not over and we're still wasting our time with it. And to me, it's so blatantly divisive and not working and not bringing us together. And I know it's still difficult sometimes to speak up and to say, no, I'm not going to be bullied or, hey, I have a right to ask a question, even if I come from a quote, privileged group, or I have a right to express curiosity about difference or you know, I think people don't necessarily need to be all identical and the same in order for us to achieve equality. I know these things are difficult, but I feel like wherever we can possibly say those things um, in a relatively safe space or in a group of people, even if it's not totally safe, um, I think ultimately a lot of us feel these things and think these things. And the more we speak up, the more I think we encourage others to do so. Um, I think that level of vulnerability or all levels of vulnerability breed vulnerability in others. And I think that's what this ultimately is about, right? In order to create change was that great Brene Brown quote, um, that you cannot innovate without vulnerability, right? That's the point in order to suggest something new or do something new or offer an alternative narrative. We have to say something that's a little bit scary and sort of goes against the status quo. So anywhere and anyhow that you see that you are capable to do that. I think it's important in order to really support people that are doing that in the world, like Chloe, on a really large scale um, and uh, taking a lot of risk in order to do so. So thank you for being here with me. If you can uh, support the show uh, for free or financially, you can do that at anyakots.substack.com. Either way, I really appreciate you being here, sharing episodes with friends, leaving me a review on iTunes, which is really easy and helps the show show up in search results for more people and helps people I reach out to think that this show is actually legitimate and um, maybe it will make them more likely to agree to come on. So I will speak to you on the other end of my safari. Hopefully I will record so many things, both um, visually and like audibly audio based, um, to share with you. I'm super excited for that. I've never seen any of those animals outside of a zoo. Um, and we're going to be doing, uh, really like a self drive safari. We have a guide, but we're camping in tents. Uh, so safaris are freaking expensive. You guys, holy shit. I had no idea. We we're like, we're going to come to Tanzania and do a safari. And it was like, okay, that will be $10,000 for four days per person. Um, so we had to get incredibly creative about how to do this for a lot less money. Um, and we did find a way to do it and we're really excited. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with all of you so that hopefully more of you can have this experience as well. Um, so yeah, enjoy the song, enjoy this episode, and I will catch you on the other side of this conversation.
conversation. I feel a bit like manically excited to have this conversation. So I'm going to try to calm down a little bit. Um, But no, I feel super relieved um, when I I saw you on Bill Maher actually for the first time. And I started this podcast a few years ago when Me Too was starting and a lot of the anti-racism stuff was starting, especially in our age group. I think you're also a millennial. Um, And I found myself kind of like overwhelmed and confused because I believed in all of these things and yet often found myself alienated from kind of like the mainstream rhetoric around how we would achieve equality. Um, And so I was really relieved to hear about you and the theory of enchantment and the work that you're doing in anti-racism that 
seems and sounds quite different, I think, than what I'm, what I've experienced conventionally. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I wanted to start with, and we'll get into the details of what you do and your project and all of that. Um, but I'd be curious to hear if you've thought about this, cause I'm, I've been thinking about this at this phase in my life. Like if there was sort of an overarching theme and guidepost of what drives you in your life and what you're working toward, um, what might you say that is like, what is that? That sort of is the overarching pull of your interests and passions. Um, Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I have to say, I think it's love. <laughs> yeah. Love would be the overarching theme. And I think it's cause I don't know. It's for a whole host of reasons. I don't think we talk about love in our society in a serious way or with a deliberate kind of discipline um, that could maybe produce love. And, um, so I'm, I've been much more conscious and intentional about like surfacing that language in, <laughs> in conversations <laughs> with people, yeah. both public and private. So that's where I am right now. Yeah. I mean, you must, do you sometimes find it difficult to sort of like constellate that into something. I mean, I know this is what the theory of enchantment is really about, but do you feel sometimes like it's difficult to kind of take that overarching guidepost or passion and really bring it into the sort of like tangible reality of like, okay, here's how we practice this um, in real life. Well, it's very lonely for sure. It's a very lonely thing to practice. And, um, but I do think like theory of enchantment is basically an ecology of practices put together, um, from all different kinds of like wisdom traditions and experts in love, I'd say. Um, so it's helpful to create theory of enchantment just from my own personal perspective, because it helps me to like bring love up in a practical way or try to practice love in a very tangible way. But it is a very lonely experience because, well, just because I don't think, like I said, I don't think love is something that's um, emphasized or, or valued highly in our society as a deliberate, intentional thing to pursue or way of being to pursue. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually going to ask you about loneliness and alienation in this work. Um, yeah, let's get into the theory of enchantment, why don't you give sort of like an overview of what it is? I'm sure we'll <laughs> dissect all the different parts as we get going, but what is it and what was sort of the initial inspiration to create this? So theory of enchantment is an anti-racism organization that I run and we teach people how to fight racism by teaching them how to love. And we do that by giving them practices that empower them to embody three main principles, which are, treat people like human beings, not political abstractions, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down or destroy, and try to root everything you do in love and compassion, which is the culmination of the first two principles. Mm. And <clears throat> it came out of two different strands, I guess, of my life. The first strand that Theory of Enchantment was responding to was my own religious upbringing, which was, I would say half and half dogmatic and curious, curious, I guess, curiosity oriented. 
um, dogmatic in the sense that it definitely has a lot of fundamentalist ideas in it. Um, and those ideas at some point failed to speak to what I needed in terms of my, my own spirituality. And that begged the question, you know, if, if as Christians we were taught to love, well then how do you actually love? Like, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what is love? Um, right. Like what, what is that? Um, so that, that's one thing that it was responding to. I was basically trying to like make myself whole as a result of going through this experience or living with a, a tradition that no longer, um, that no longer sustained me in terms of my spiritual needs. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing that it was a response to was my involvement in, um, I guess you could say, concern about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in college. So I had an Israel advocacy organization, like a club that I created, and because I was deeply concerned about anti-Semitism resurfacing and stuff like that. And so I did Israel advocacy, but then I learned through the process that the approach in Israel advocacy was very like hyper analytical, hyper cerebral, super unmessy, um, which again was insufficient. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it wasn't until I started reading like Israeli literature that I was able to see and appreciate the messiness of the situation for what it was and to not be turned off by the messiness because life is messy. <laughs> right. Um, and so theory of enchantment was also created out of that, um, out of a desire to make Israel advocacy better on, on some level, but also out of a desire to just get us to be able to deal with the messiness of life, which I think is a core component of love and what love uh, entails. So those are the two branches that created, that resulted in theory of enchantment ultimately. I would love to talk a bit more about your religious upbringing because it sounds unique, mm -hmm. <laughs> the specific yeah. um, realm of Christianity that you grew up in. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about it. I'm very interested in religion and spirituality. And um, I wonder if like growing up in that kind of an experience and having that experience that differed from other sort of mainstream forms of Christianity, do you think that at a young age you started to question like assumptions that other people were making about society or like yeah. thinking about social constructionism at a young age before you even kind of knew what that meant? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Ironically, <laughs> ironically, the religious experience that I grew up with totally shaped the way I see the world because it, it, it forced me to question, um, foundational assumptions. So, cause I grew up in a Christian home that rejected every Christian like holiday. So we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't celebrate Easter. We didn't celebrate Halloween because all of, we viewed all of these as like, like fake news or whatever. Like we, <laughs> we, we, yeah. we like saw these things as like 
these fake things that were created by Emperor Constantine and like superimposed on Christianity at a later time and like not real authentic Christianity. And at the same time, we observed Jewish holidays like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Passover. And so there's the, that's paradox right there, right? Like yeah, that's a paradoxical experience and that's a paradoxical perception of the world. So from a very early age, I guess you could say I was taught to question for sure. Um, And that meant that there was a loophole in that religious experience that would enable me to leave it. (laughs) Because if I could, if, if at the center of it, I could question, then that meant that I could question this religion as well. Right. So that was sort of like the built in loophole that, um, I don't know that my parents were aware that that was a thing, but, (laughs) but yes, it's definitely shaped the way that I see structures. And I, I, I guess I don't take the automatic uh, operations of structures for granted because of the way I was raised. Right. So let's talk about that idea of not taking these sort of conventional assumed structures for granted within the realm of, anti-racism and anti-racism training. Um, And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of your criticisms of whether it's critical race theory or just the way these trainings um, are conducted (laughs) normally Um, and what you you see as the problem and how you started questioning them and sort of where you ended up as a result. Well, okay. So I think it was Carl Jung who said, that our default way of thinking as human beings is a Gnostic way of thinking. Now, what does that mean? Like, Gnosticism was this, like, second-century psychotechnology that came out of the Hellenistic period that was produced as a way to help people deal with alienation and homelessness after the death of Alexander the Great and the subsequent, uh, I guess, expulsion of peoples around the world. And Gnosticism is running through our systems, our, you know, structure. It's a civilizational fabric. It's in our brains. And Gnosticism, in a a very summed up way, basically is a way of seeing the world through a split view. And so think of, like, something like The Matrix, for example. The Matrix is a very Gnostic idea, this idea that we live in a fallen world, an oppressive world, right? And we have to sort of like wake up to a greater truth um, about the real way the world works, blah, 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 right? That's a Gnostic idea. It predates, you know, the matrix by many, many years. (laughs) And um, there's a problem with this worldview. This worldview can be okay in certain contexts, but like there's a problem if you take it to its logical conclusion, And the problem with it is that instead of understanding that there's good and bad in everything and there's good and bad in every one of us, Mm -hmm. what we do as a default is we split the world in a Gnostic fashion and we say all those people over there who look like this are good and all those people over there who look like this are bad, right? Or insert whatever, you know, category you want. And so that system is running through us automatically by default and so we have to work overtime to practice seeing the world in a different way what i would call a non-dualistic way um and that 
Gnostic framework is running through most anti-racism programs. <laughs> it's basically like all those white people are privileged and all these black people are oppressed, right? Or, or all these white people are fragile and all these black people are victims, right? And it's, it's something that runs deep inside the human species, a way of viewing things like that and cutting up the world, dissecting the world in that way. Um, it's a way to deal with, it's like a defensive mechanism. It's a way to deal with like anxiety and despair and it's a, a natural defensive mechanism. But the problem is that it actually ends up perpetuating some of the things we're trying to end. The illusion of separation between human beings. Um, if we're wanting to build what Dr. King called the beloved community, if we're wanting to create that atmosphere of love and integration we have to actually come to terms with the fact that everyone contains both good and evil um everyone contains certainly the potential for both good and evil and whiteness depends upon blackness and blackness depends upon whiteness in a very like Taoist, you know <laughs> sense of the yeah. word so in a nutshell i would say that most of these or a lot of these anti-racism programs are very Gnostic and they split the world and they basically say all these people here are X and all these people over here are Y, which doesn't actually help in the long run. Right. Yeah, I totally understand that. And I, I feel like that way of approaching the world and like that particular mythology is obviously feeding something. I mean, probably feeding something for both sides, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot about story and about narrative. And it's like, do you feel like a lot of your work is trying to sort of rewrite a story oh. for us to reevaluate our place in? Um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I guess that analogy resonates with me. I used to yeah. be really interested in screenwriting, so <laughs> that actually yeah. works, works really well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, rewriting the story, I don't know, but that does resonate with me. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if you, like, what do you think the current story, the dualistic way of approaching the world is feeding? Like, do you... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it puts us in control, right? Because yeah. where does racism come from, at least in the West? Racism comes from this sort of, like, like it's basically in in our pursuit of knowledge as a civilization we like during the enlightenment for example in our pursuit of scientific certainty as a means of you know protesting against popes and things like that you know institutions that had control over knowledge or monopoly we started to want to pursue feverishly scientific certainty and knowledge. And then we developed a bias against the unknown as a result of our pursuit of knowledge. Right. And so a synonym for the unknown is darkness. So we developed, I mean, all human beings are afraid of the dark on a very fundamental level, but the way that manifested itself at scale in the West was we started to associate darkness with evil and corruption and all these bad things. And we started to associate light, the enlightenment with good and purity and all these things. 
Um, and then we projected those things that we defined as darkness onto physically darker peoples. So the psychological need to control and predict outcomes led to a incredible uh, pathology <laughs> uh, fueled by splitting, right, which resulted in racism. And so I think that humans have a deep need to control and predict. We don't know what to do with ourselves if we can't pr- control and predict outcomes. We, it's very hard for us to live in, the, in, the, in liminal spaces. It's very hard for us to live in the present now, right, without constantly trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And so all of these things, when taken to the extreme, have certain consequences, certain pathological consequences. And so, but I think ultimately the, what it's, what it's satisfying for us is our need for certainty. And if we can place all these people who look like this in that bucket, then that's like, then I have a rubric so that I can understand the way the world works. Right. So, and that's really hard to overcome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also there, there's so many different pieces of this, like, to me, in many ways, the way that I feel like anti-racism appears in the mainstream feels like very anti-intuitive to me, Um, which is really interesting because I'm very interested in all of these things. Like I grew up, my dad's gay. And so I grew up like marching in the streets to fight for gay marriage. And I also, I feel like approached a lot of these issues from the place of love and, and the place of like viewing difference from a place of curiosity, um, like wanting to move toward it and ask questions. And I feel like there was this sort of like tent or umbrella over a lot of this work that felt like I wasn't like asking questions was wrong or engaging was wrong. Um, and it sort of makes you think like, oh, is this conversation actually productive? Um, it feels kind of hostile, but maybe that's my white fragility. And it was just like all these really complex, <laughs> um, confusing. And yeah, I just, I wonder for, for white people too, like what is it feeding for them that the sort of... Um, I don't know, this grappling with power and control, I guess, maybe is also part of it. Can you, can you uh, give an example of like where you think, what, what you think white people believe when they're coming from the, the let's say, the not-so-healthy anti-racism approaches? Um, that's a good question. I guess I think a lot about power, not necessarily in regards to race, although that as well. I studied gender and sexuality. So that's normally how I think about it in a sort of like, what is the power dynamic in a sexual sense or in a gendered sense? Um, And so I think sometimes about whether power is bad or not, right? And can we, can we use power for good? Um, And so, you know, around like, in some anti-racism training when you're like, okay, these people need to speak, but these people can't, or you can't ask a question because, um, you know, you need to not talk because you've talked for too long. Um, and then of course, in a way, like, I think I'm a pretty loving, empathetic person. And so I want to do what's best. And yet at the same time, I feel very 
curious and, uh, you know, wondering, yeah, just how to engage with the power, I guess, to answer your question. Um, okay. Around race. I think that power is just a proxy for a need to control and predict. I think that it keeps going back to that. I think that there's nothing wrong with power. Well, I think that power is neutral. Um, It can be in service of good or ill. I think that patriarchy does not mean um, simply that men are in control of whatever it means a society in which power is the highest value again for the purpose of controlling and predicting. Right. right. Um, and so, uh, where am I going with this? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I don't know the value system of anyone white or black. I don't know necessarily what the value system of those individuals, like what it would be if they are, if they feel like these anti-racism programs are resonating with them or speaking to them, um, there is a kind of like victim savior dynamic probably going on there. Right. As well. So James Baldwin talked about this in 1949, where he talked about these two books. One was written by a black man. One was written by a white woman, which is so funny how history like repeats itself in my mind. Cause it's like, <laughs> Oh, like Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo were like writing in 1949, but like in a totally different context, kind of, you know. And then, and in that, um, in that context, it was Native Son and Uncle Tom's Cabin, and these books were like being promoted as an anti as anti racism. <laughs> and Baldwin wrote a piece called Everybody's Protest Novel. I think it was his first essay, actually, which criticize these novels for doing nothing but continuing to perpetuate stereotypes about black and white Americans alike and failing to actually capture the complexity of what it meant to be a human being, regardless of skin color. And so I imagine that there's that, there's like a similar thing happening here where no one is wanting to grapple with the mystery at the heart of being. Um, Because again, we live in a society who's if you you know if you believe that we live in a patriarchy that means that we live in a society whose highest value is controlling and predicting right and obviously you can see how that would come out of incredible amounts of anxiety and despair and just like i mean there's so much history to this there's like calvinism and the protestant work ethic and like the traumas of Europe and like all this baggage that we brought with us as a civilization are still with us today. So I'm not sure what individual white Americans are getting out of these um, trainings. And I'm not sure that all of them or even most of them are like resonating with these trainings, but I do know that we have all this historical baggage that has brought us to this place um, that actually, you know, predates America even. And that's a lot to have to deal with. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, going back to that sort of loneliness topic and the alienation, do you find that there, that people are really resonating with what you're doing? Did you feel at first like people didn't agree with your approach to anti-racism training and were like 
more comfortable with the status quo or or do you feel like people have really been relieved and and welcoming of mm. your work yeah that's a good question I mean I think a lot of people have definitely resonated with theory of enchantment some people disagree with it some people are still very much in the whole um like some this hasn't happened in a while but when I was first doing it some people would respond in workshops just with like a random aside that had nothing to do with what I was saying. It was basically like, um, I just want to, it was like a statement that went, I just want to acknowledge that most of the people in this room are white. It was like a statement, which I, I had no idea what I was supposed to take from that, (laughs) you know, like what that was supposed to imply. But I knew that it was coming from the kind of Robin D'Angelo esque, you know, approach and so I would just sort of like move on (laughs) when I would hear that but for the most part um it does resonate with a lot of people another challenge is actually not necessarily the Robin D'Angelo-esque response it's more of the which is interesting it's more of the like hyper cerebral hyper analytical response because theory of enchantment is trying to in part get us to like it's it's in, it's inaccurate to say drop into the body and forget the head because they're actually one, right? There's no dichotomy. But I guess what we're trying to do is to get people to realize that there's no dichotomy. And because we live in a Cartesian world that split the mind and the body and its philosophy, it's very, very difficult for people to be comfortable with talking about feelings, right? right. And stuff like that. And so, like, that's becoming this interesting like point of conversation (laughs) in workshops. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I have to imagine that a lot of this has to do with really understandable anger and trauma or unprocessed trauma. And I feel like I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this, but like a lot of the time it's easier to make things cerebral and intellectual as a way to kind of avoid the pain of whatever it is the thing is that we're dealing with. It's true. And, however, I will say it's almost always not been black people who have, who have, um, who have done the, either the, I just want to acknowledge that most of the people in the room are white or, <laughs> like, which is interesting to me. Right. Like, well, that's so interesting. Like what's going on with that? Um, I, I don't know that it's, it's, it's probably partly trauma, but it's also just, we don't have the practice. You have to practice going into the body. You have to practice being oriented towards, you have to practice being in relationship with feelings for me. If, if we're talking about, like, what is the opposite of a society in which power is the highest value, it's a society in which relationship is the highest value, right? And relationship on all levels. So not only relationship with others, but also relationship with yourself. And relationship with, like, your feelings. And, oh, that, uh, wow, that was anger. What does anger feel like, you know? Let me, like, yeah. grapple with that. That's so interesting. Yeah. I just learned this new thing about myself, which presupposes that I have to accept that there's a mystery at the heart of who I am and I'm constantly becoming I'm not this static fixed thing right I'm a being and I am constantly constantly becoming and I don't think we have the we have not developed at all 
the tools as a civilization to do that, to practice that. And I think that's the larger, and of course, not having that paves the way for more trauma. But I think that is the, (laughs) that is like the issue. That's like the, you know, civilizational issue at hand. Yeah. Yeah. And when I say anger and unprocessed trauma, I wasn't just speaking about black people either. I think we have a lot to be angry about and traumatized by. And, and also like, I wonder if how much of this is also about the need for belonging and community and that we're so separated and so alienated for one another and um, our society prioritizes individualism over being in community. Um, And so it's like, oh, those people are angry about this thing that I'm angry about. Like, hell yeah, I belong to something now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean... I read this great book by Timothy Carney called Alienated America, which really mm. opened my eyes to the experiences of alienation in the United States that people are going through of all walks of life. Um, and I imagine, especially during COVID where experiences of alienation were through the roof, social isolation, etc., that it became all the more, uh, attractive to gravitate towards some, something or some process or some movement that reflected your own anger back at you. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do see what you're saying there, that that could have been, that could have been very um, much a temptation. Of course, the difference between that and the civil rights movement is that many of the leaders in the civil rights movement were very much intentional about channeling anger <laughs> Like Dr. King says in a letter from a Birmingham jail, when the clerg- clergymen are like complaining about the nonviolent <laughs> protests that they're doing. <laughs> uh, and he's like, the people are angry. You can, you can let the anger be channeled into a riot or you can let the anger be channeled into a nonviolent protest. Like I'm basically transmuting that into a nonviolent protest, but like, if you aren't intentional about it, it will result in riot, rioting, right? And looting and things like that. Um, and that's not, it's interesting because sometimes I have this like, tip, like this pet peeve when conservatives mistake that for, when conservatives hear that and they think that someone is justifying violence or something like that. It's like, no, it's just a description. <laughs> like it's an observation yeah. of the way human nature works and that's the way it works, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, people gravitated towards other movements that reflected the emotions that they were experiencing, which is actually very, like, empathy. You know, that's a very empathetic process to a certain extent. Um, but I think that many of the movements, at least from 2020, that or the protests that went down did not have that extra... Um, sort of instructional discipline, which is how do we take our, how do we learn to relate to our emotions, right? And transmute them in such a way that they will produce long-term change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Can you talk a little bit more too about 
how the theory of enchantment works as far as training is concerned and the sort of practices that you integrate. Um, because I think, uh, that must be, I don't know, one of the sort of hardest things to do or to sort of, like I said at the beginning, sort of like take these sort of very large esoteric, yeah. hard to grasp con concepts of love and equality and curiosity and sort of boil them down into actual practices or teachings and training. So I'm curious how you did that. Yeah. So we have workshops and we have online courses and in our workshops we play, we do activities that we call games. And so for example, in our sprint, we have a workshop or a game called the who am I game mm. and the game is very simple you take five minutes and you ask yourself who am i and you write down every question every answer that comes down and after you write down every answer you silently say to yourself thank you you express gratitude and the key to this game is to make sure you also write those things down that you don't like about yourself mm. and remember to say thank you because we're trying to bring people from that split dualistic view of themselves and of, of the world to a non-dualistic split or non-dualistic view and one of the ways to start doing that is to get them to realize their own nature which is non-dualistic so if they can begin to say and express gratitude for the full complexity of who they are including the things that they don't like about themselves mm. they can move towards that non-dualistic view and that's important because racism happens when you take some element of yourself that you don't like and you project it onto another group of people in order to feel good about yourself so if you can start to learn how to accept the fullness of yourself you'll be less likely to do that so that's one game that we do we have like discussions around Kendrick Lamar's uh, DNA where he says I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. And it's like, okay, so what is the artist saying about his complexity? You know, he has good things. He has toxic things. Like how is he able to make sense of it? How does this, how can this awareness lead to um, a less, a, a less proneness to stereotyping? Because when you stereotype others, you're also stereotyping yourself by definition, because it's non-dual, right? Because blackness depends upon whiteness, because dark depends upon light. Um, what are some other games that we have? We have, uh, we, we teach about uh, this thing called mimesis, which is this tendency for human beings to imitate each other. And particularly in conflict, for people to start imitating their enemies in conflict. Mm -hmm. This is something that, like, Dr. King also was very keen on and warned against um so we do this uh experience where we show how you know you have to be careful because if you don't like trump then you might automatically assume that all of trump's enemies are your friends and all of trump's friends are your enemies <laughs> and you'll like automatically get into this this unconscious like automatic thing because again, you're putting people, all these people over here are good and all these people over here are bad. So yeah. we're like trying to wire people's brains to look for these patterns within themselves. And then our online course, which is the most intensive, I'd say, experience that we have is a longer form version of that where you're doing all these exercises, you're going over parental baggage, you're doing like 
empathy practices, you're doing nonviolent communication, you're being introduced to the idea of the masculine and the feminine. So you're doing all these things as an individual to start rewiring your brain to see in a non-dualistic whole way. That's awesome. Yeah, and I guess the masculine and the feminine because of the polarity thing that we both contain both of those. Yes, and also also that it actually correlates in a really cool way with nonviolent communication because Marsha Rosenberg, who wrote about nonviolent communication, has this whole set of strategies when you're like, trying to express yourself to someone else, but you're angry at them. Like, how do you express uh, the need behind the feeling? And how do you listen with empathy towards what the other person is saying that they need? And that's cool because that, that giving and receiving actually corresponds with the feminine. And then to, to be able to discern what you're actually feeling, you know, in real time, Right, that corresponds with the masculine. And so if you can like map these things onto an actual practice, it becomes, in my opinion, it becomes like really cool to yeah. to you know see that play itself out. Yeah. I'm very interested in that stuff as well. Um yeah, so I you talk about self-actualization mm-hmm. and sort of purification, and I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about how that relates to all of this. It when you were talking just now, it struck me that, you know, I feel like maybe in some conventional anti-racism trainings that we're trying to like swap power from one group to another or like opt out of power or opt into power, depending on which group. It's also so weird to say like white people and black people to me, I feel (laughs) like it doesn't make sense. Um, but I just want to say that disclaimer and, and keep going. Um, but I feel like what you're doing is is more to say, like, it's to empower people more than it is to say, like, you have power, this group has power, that group has power, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, that has always rubbed me the wrong way. That has always been, like, because if you look at every single, not every single, that's probably not true. Um, if you look at so many movies where villains become villains, they become villains because because they become obsessed with power. And the reason why they become obsessed with power is because they don't have the tools to be able to deal with suffering. They don't. They weren't given those tools, and right. the, the pain of the suffering is too much that they that their only respite is to power grab. Right? Uh, like you see this in Star Wars with Anakin becoming Darth Vader. You see this in Toy Story Three with Lotso Bear feeling abandoned and like ashamed and so he like eh, grabs onto power. Um you see this in Black Panther with Killmonger, right? So much suffering and then he literally wants to become like a genocidal <laughs> dictator right so like there's this relationship between not being able to deal with suffering because you weren't given the tools to do that and this craving to control and predict right because that's fundamentally what power at least if it's the highest value is all about whereas what we're trying to do is we're trying to give people those tools that will enable them to relate to themselves so that they don't have to power grab uh, or try to have this like unhealthy craving to control and predict as a way of dealing with their own sense of suffering. So I think that's like the key 
difference between what those organizations are doing and what we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, and it really does sound like, especially in that exercise that you lined out about people writing down or explaining who they are, that this is really about sort of personal empowerment more that it's more than it's about like you having power as a part of this category or as a part of this group. Right. Because that's reductive. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately (laughs) that's that's like, that's that's so reductive and it's not, and it's still a stereotype and it's still a caricature and it's, you know, it's, you're still putting someone in a box. And if, and if organizations as a whole, and this is really where we want to, you know, be at as a company. If organizations as a whole, if entire departments are doing the work of learning how to relate to themselves, right, and to each other by definition, then, like, how does that transform an organization? I don't know. We'll, 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 we're still, like, waiting to see. But, like, we have a <laughs> hypothesis that that's going to really transform you know, organizations for the good, as opposed to like, you have the power. No, I have no, you have the power. It's like this game of hot potato and it doesn't really result in anything fun. Yeah. I had a sort of unofficial tagline to my podcast for a while, which was fix yourself to fix the world. Like if the sum, you know, if the sum of all these individual parts is what we're trying to change, then we better focus on the individual parts of whatever makes that up. If everyone Um, was working on themselves, oh my goodness, like that would just, that would be it, that we would have solved world peace, you know, truly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it is, I don't know, do you feel disheartened ever? Because I do feel like the amount of people that would need to kind of opt into that and the lack of access that we have to therapy or to these types of trainings. Um, I don't know. I sort of feel like I go back and forth a bit between feeling optimistic and kind of overwhelmed by, you know, not even is this possible to kind of like change things, but also is there something within us, like you said, that's so drawn to the conflict or drawn to the power imbalance or drawn you know, is there something like we're trying to learn here? And so we we're resistant to overcome it. I know that's like such a broad question. <laughs> I, I mean, I do get, I do sometimes fluctuate between optimism and loneliness, but I think that's because I'm still grappling with shifting from a teleological view of the world to a non-teleological view. So like, because I grew up the way I grew up, it's like, it's like very like, apocalyptic and like everything is headed toward a final you know fixed utopian point obviously that shows up in not just you know orthodox religious circles but also in progressive circles which is interesting that there's an overlap but i don't believe in that anymore like i don't believe that the world is is headed towards some fixed utopic state i also read this great book called finite and infinite games by james Carr's where he talks about the difference. Yeah. You know, this book, it's, it's so good. Um, but it's hard. It's like hard to shift from one mentality to the other. If you were raised in, in the first mentality. And so part of me knows that I'm like, I'm not supposed to produce. It's not possible to produce this like perfect place where everyone is like in perfect harmony with each other. Um, And yet, at the same time, like, we're building something for those who want it, right? If you want it, it's here. 
and I only have control over what I have control over. This is also about like surrendering control. Um, you know, the patriarchy is in me and as, in as much as it, as it is in everyone else, I think. So like I have to be mindful of like my own relationship with needing to control outcomes as a way to deal with my own, let's say sense of loneliness and like see that for what it is and be able to, you know, step back from that. Yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that a little more too, like just personally, like what is that pull of feeling alienated or lonely in the work that you're doing and how do you sort of navigate that and how do you see it maybe as a part of your own journey of self-actualization oh yeah for sure I mean I I was telling someone the other day I was at a party it was like at a person's house and I usually like look at all the books if I can and so I'm looking at all these books and there's like books about history and finance and legal stuff and like there's nothing about psychology and for me, that's like a red flag because like there's nothing about human relationships if there's nothing about psychology. And I told my friend, I was like, people, we as a species are terrified of relationship. Like we don't know how to do it and we don't want to, we don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that can be very lonely because I have just decided to like orient my life around a deliberate attempt to be in relationship, which again is the opposite of power. Now it doesn't mean that, you know, I won't, I won't grapple, have to grapple with power because I do because I'm a human being. Right. But just making the decision to try and relate to everything (laughs) as it emerges within me is lonely. It's lonely because, well, it's, it's exhausting because it's lonely because, you know, not a lot of people out there are also like actively doing that. And if you don't have someone to share with or talk to about it, um, just about your journey, like have them talk to you about their journey in their relationship with relationship and then your journey Mm -hmm. in your relationship with relationship, it can become very lonely. However, I will say that I've read a lot of books by, um, Jungian authors on womanhood specifically um, and I do find them very comforting because they actually talk about the relationship between womanhood and loneliness which I find very interesting and, and, and mm-hmm. how loneliness is something that women in particular have to grapple with um, if you're interested there's this amazing book by Helen Luke <laughs> called the way of woman, which talks about this and it's really been, um, really been helpful. But yeah, I, th- I think loneliness will always be with me on some level. I think I'm not trying to like escape it. I mean, sometimes I am, but like for the most part, I'm not trying to escape it or like overcome it. I think it's just a part mm-hmm. of like suffering that's inherent to life. And so learning to be with that is, is really the question of how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, these, that's totally the domain that I'm super fascinated in. Um, I also read a lot about femininity and masculinity from like the Jungian perspective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and like it's Robert a whole Johnson. World. And, yes, and yeah, then yeah. women. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the masters. I just watched eight hours of Marion Woodman, 
and Robert Johnson in conversation talking about this stuff. So good. And I was like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I think did you read um Robert Johnson's She? No, I still haven't read either of them. I need to read them. But I'm like just like They're still good. processing from this eight hour conversation that I watched. Yeah. But yeah, I I do want to buy their stuff. It's incredible. Yeah. Um <laughs> Total, I was going to say total diver, divergence, but actually not. I feel like these things yeah, are no, it's definitely related. so interwoven. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. I spend a lot of time with people who are very interested, and I am as well, uh, with community and like rebuilding community and like what does a modern day tribe look like and how can we become more egalitarian and foster relationships and it's it's frustrating because while this is our interest in in many ways we're all like all of us all my friends are live in all these different places and like by way of doing this work to bring people together we end up feeling so lonely and alienated um do you think about like scale at all here too yeah for sure especially as a business owner (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, our whole uh, hypothesis is that like the business becomes like businesses that take our training actually come to replace the churches, basically, right? Because like if you look at any successful effort to scale, whether it's like when Christianity was scaling back in the day, or like when like the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Hasidic Judaism massively scaled um, Hasidic Judaism through Chabad, right? Like we don't have those institutions anymore in, in, in many ways, like the churches and the synagogues and houses of worship have really fallen um, in terms of attendance. And so like, what are the already existing containers that could potentially scale this up well it's actually those businesses that want to do anti-racism work and so our whole hypothesis is that if we can slowly but surely start to get companies to shift their culture and to practice things like the theory of enchantment as a way of being then that will have so many positive benefits on the businesses themselves that they're, they will be models for other businesses who will see that and want to emulate it. And then that's how we'll scale. That's, that's the thought. (laughs) We'll see if it happens. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting because when I asked that question, I was actually thinking about like, do things tend to not fail, but like, is it possible to have a civilization or a society or a culture of the size that we have now? and create something like, because I'm really interested in community, I used to think like, okay, I want to create a structure. Like I want to create a prototype for like a modern day tribe. And I want to, yeah, create the whole structure for this and then allow other people to sort of copy it or use it. And sometimes I wonder if like, but maybe the way that I would create this would be different than some, how someone else might create it. And so do we have, does it create a problem actually when we try to scale something too big and maybe just our society is too big and we need to kind of say, like, I don't know, when I hear you talk about the, um, the theory of enchantment, like it, it really feels like you're not just creating empowerment and self-actualization for individuals, but also the sense of like trust and community within 
whatever the the business is, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think that there will still be unity and diversity because, you know, a textile company that takes on our training is going to look different from a hospital that takes on yeah. our training. It will be molded to fit whatever circumstances, you know, and problems that emerge in those particular environments. So I think there is an opportunity to have complexity and unity at the same time with the theory of enchantment model, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to talk a little bit about transcendence. Um, Okay. (laughs) A little bit, just. Sure. (laughs) But I read this piece that you wrote about, um, the Museum of African American History. I think. Ah, yes, uh, so good. I, I love thought, that museum. Yeah. So good. And I, so I'd love for you to just like briefly sort of talk about the way that museum is structured and your experience of it, and um, how. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like this, the sort of avoiding universalism and like how, this this idea of self actualization. How do we like take our history and take our lives and ourselves? and use them as a way to kind of create who we are and create a better world? Well, the uh, Smithsonian African American History Museum in D.C. is built in a way that I think sort of imitates the direction of transcendence, which is like usually, well, in some ways, it's usually upwards. And so the first uh, floor of the museum is like about slavery and it's sort of like being in the bowels of a ship, like during the Atlantic slave trade, it's a sort of like designed in that way. And then you ascend to the next floor and it's like, I think something like, um, like all about, uh, black entrepreneurship and, um, the business world of black America and the success that we've had in, in those spaces. And then the next, or also athleticism, I think is one of those, it's something that's covered. And then the next floor also, uh, uh, um, participation in the military. And then the next one you get to explore whatever you want. And then the highest is like the arts, which is such a statement about the power of the arts and the importance of the arts in the African American community. Um, it's like a resounding testament to like the um, resilience of the community. In speaking about like ancestry and heritage, I was watching this story on 60 Minutes about this man who had purchased uh, a former plantation in Virginia. And I guess he, when he bought it, he didn't even know it was a former plantation. And then ultimately, not only did he find out that it was a former plantation, but he found out that his ancestors were enslaved in this plantation it's it was one of yeah it was crazy um and uh which of course in my mind seems sort of perfect like of course yeah yeah it's like very very, like serendipitous yeah 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 just the synchronicity of it is like so miraculous um but in reading that piece that you wrote and listening to you speak about this too like how this idea is maybe the opposite of universalism and the importance of the history and the importance of that history in our own self-actualization as well. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know what you mean by universalism. I was always taught that the it's through the particular that universalism comes and like universalism divorce of the particular doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I, 
yeah, it's, I'm not sure. What do you mean by universalism? Well, I just wonder, like, if we have downgraded the importance of difference in the process of trying to achieve equality. Um, Like, I wonder if in our attempt, I mean, I see this also with, with gender, um, that like in order to be equal, we all need to be the same. And I feel like what you teach and um, speak about is like, no, it's actually okay to be very different from one another, not in, not in terms of like equality or worthiness, but just in terms of our story, right? Yeah, for sure. The um, uniqueness of a person's story. It's ironic yeah. that it's like, it's almost like a false individualism that, that, breeds a very shoddy universalism right so yeah so yeah i could see what you're saying in that sense for sure um i just thought it was really interesting the idea of transcendence is not about like 5d ascension or like opting out of our stories so you'll appreciate this marion woodman has this whole thing which i just blew my mind which talks about making the spirit flesh and this idea from Christianity that, like, in a Jungian context is actually so profound. Like, this idea of Jesus as the word made flesh, the spirit made flesh. And Marion Woodman has this idea, this whole thing, like, thing about, like, it's like, this goes back to also the importance of the body. It's like the matter, mm. the root, the, which comes from the word mother, right? It's like the mm. physical component. It's not like some, you know, wafting away or like disappearing into the air. It's like, no, you're making the spirit flesh. It's like coming down into a real physical container. And I feel like that's what, that's what you're talking about. It's like the importance of that. And there is, and you know, there's a lot of religious history that has given way to this false aspiration that you're supposed to like separate it, be separated from the body. Right. That's like the whole Cartesian framework is like the mind body split and yeah there's like centuries that inform so much trauma in our society you know and even the people who came up with those ideas were themselves responding to trauma so it's like trauma and trauma and trauma it's like really messy to untangle yeah yeah and it's interesting to see that in the context of like how we talk about this stuff in the context of like the black body or the Jewish body. I think when I was in college, I I'm Jewish. And I, I remember being very interested in these ideas too, of how we embody our identity or just, I don't know, maybe going back to what we spoke about at the beginning, the sort of importance of getting back into our bodies as far as emotionality and yeah. is concerned, you know, ironically, the first time I came across the idea of the black body, I was like very turned off by it. And it was because it was, it was in Coates's work, ta Coates. It was in between the world and me. And, um, have you read between the world and me? I lo- a while ago. Yeah. Okay. So you know how he's talking about like this, this guy who he knew at university, Prince, Prince Jones was killed by a cop and he talks about how like um he only basically how he like only cares about the body he doesn't care about like he went to his funeral and they were like mourning and there's this rich black like spiritual tradition but he couldn't relate to it he only cared about about the body and i realized because i reread that part very recently and i was like this is so interesting coats you're like an atheist 
but <laughs> you're like saying some like Marion Woodman level shit, which like might subconsciously have something to do with making the spirit flesh. Um, and like, uh, is, is this whole like interest in the body actually a weird, uh, or not weird, but like a subconscious craving to make the spirit fl- like a protest against this like Cartesian framework and a desire to like make the spirit flesh, like the word made flesh. Like, is that what's going on here? Like mm-hmm. interesting. I don't know. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the answer, but it's so <laughs> yeah, no, that's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, and also what you said before about these sort of spaces that religion took up, Uh that I feel, um, Robert Johnson talks about, there's this great book actually called inner gold that he wrote. It's like 75 pages. I will read it. And it's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. It it, it talks about a lot of this stuff, but he sort of speaks about how we used to have a lot more respect for authority and that actually in our culture, we're moving toward having less respect for it. And so like God used to be in the church and like God used to be in God, right. It was sort of external from us and that we're in this process of recognizing, an understanding that we have authority within us yeah. and that therefore we have this. Which is a lot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just a lot. It's a lot um, to take in. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're in this process or journey of like moving toward better understanding what it means to have God within us, but mm. that we're not like consciously ready for that. Maybe. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I not to like say you should create a religion, but I do feel like (laughs) people are so hungry for, I don't know. Like I think as humans, we're constantly in search of a need meeting. Yeah. Um, For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that the East in many ways has a better handle of this than we in the West. Like I started studying Taoism and Tantra because I was in search for all these things, not, which isn't to say that the West doesn't have a tradition. It does. It's like a much more mystical um, tradition and like Meister Eckhart and like people like that. But even like Hasidic Judaism, I think is deeply and profoundly has a lot to say about this. Um, but yeah, I, I'm blending all of these spiritual traditions in my own personal life to sort of like figure that, figure out that transition that Robert Johnson is like describing. Because again, if you've lived your entire life with this like apocalyptic, everything is coming to a fixed point mindset and you're trying to move to this yeah. other mindset. Like I need as many traditions as I can <laughs> to like sample yeah, from. Totally. <laughs> to like, cause that's, that is hard to handle. That's like profoundly hard to handle. And that also contributes to the loneliness piece that we talked about. Yeah. Well, I could go on and on. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Um, I always ask everyone, I know this is an impossibly difficult question, but uh, my podcast audience, we have book clubs. And so I always ask the guest, (laughs) uh, me too. I always ask the guest to recommend one book that sort of for fun to change. I know, I know, I know it's impossible. (laughs) You'll have to just come back on and you can recommend another one. Um, You can actually, you're free to mention a couple if you'd like, but a couple of books that really profoundly changed your life and then also where people can find you on the internet and learn more about your work sure so for i'll start with that one first um check out my podcast the heart speaks i'm trying to get people to drop into their hearts um check out my my work theory of enchantment theory of enchantment.com i'm on all of the social media platforms though people should know that like i take like massive breaks from social media so (laughs) there'll be like a whole months where i'm just not there so 
don't don't fret okay in terms of books um i mentioned the way of woman by helen luke which was just such a profound gift to me um I'm just looking. I'm literally looking at books on my desk here. Um, the, Mas- the Master and His Emissary by Ian McGillchrist is like an excellent account of what happened to us in the West. Um, so those two books I would recommend. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chloe. I appreciate it. Thank you. I thank you so much for inviting me. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation with Chloe. I highly recommend checking out The Theory of Enchantment, signing up for one of her trainings, reading her writing. She's really a super smart, inspiring person, um, and I wish her all of the success in the world. Um, if you would like to support the podcast, you can go to anyakots.substack.com, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. If you sign up, you can sign up for free or you can donate if you have the means. You get email notifications when I send out podcast episodes, extra information that I post in the show notes. You have the ability to comment on each episode and engage. So if you have some thoughts on this episode, which I know you guys do, um, go to Substack, post a comment. I would love to see what you think and engage with you and meet you and connect with you because I don't know who most of you are and there's thousands of you listening to this. So, and everyone that I've met who listens to this podcast so far, it's been amazing. Uh, So I would love to meet more of you. So let me know what you think about this episode or any other episode. Um, You also get access to my writing. I've been posting long-form writing and poetry. I'm going to be bringing back the book club. Uh, We have open threads. You can ask me any question that you'd like or just engage with the community. Um, Lots of things are happening on Substack and more things to come. Anyakots.substack.com. I'm going to play you out with a song that needs absolutely no introduction. You will understand why I chose it. (laughs) So please enjoy, and I will talk to you next time.